0: Welcome to the Transit Matters podcast. This is episode 20, and Transit Matters is an organization that advocates for fast, frequent, reliable, and effective public transit in and around Boston. It's part of our vision to repair, upgrade, and expand the transit network, the MBTA. We aim to elevate the conversation around transit issues through informed discussion, informed planning, and critical analysis showing why transit matters and where we go from here. Uh, today we are joined by Rich Parr from the Mass Inc. Polling Group again, and uh, we'll be talking about some fascinating survey results, uh, talking about young professionals, as well as uh, some political things. Um, and as for me, I am Jeremy Mendelson. I'm a geographer, transit planner, and longtime Boston transportation advocate. I co-founded Transit Matters because nobody else was doing it, and uh, also because someone needs to speak up for making the tea everything that it can be.
1: And I'm Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. Uh, I work as an attorney by day, uh, but in my free time, I like to indulge my passion for improving communities through better development and infrastructure, specifically with regards to transit and transportation networks. Uh, As Jeremy said, we've got Rich Parr here again. Uh, Rich, I think this is your third time on the show. Uh, It's always fascinating. Love to have you back. And I think a big part of why I like to have you on the show and and listen to to these uh, types of interviews is because it's not just about transit. We bring other things in. Um, But I think, uh, especially with some of the polls we'll be talking about today, they're very important for transit advocates to be thinking about um, a lot of these background uh, sentiments that are expressed in the polls, Mm -hmm. even if they're not um, um, straightforward uh, opinions about transit itself. Um, So uh, with that, um, you know, we we can begin talking about uh, the two polls that we have. We uh, just today is very timely podcast. uh, At least the recording of it will be very timely. Um, We... (laughs) We we apologize for the car alarm in the background. Um, Yeah, we're a transit podcast. (laughs) But uh, uh, two two polls are out recently. Um, Earlier this week, the ULI um, poll um, with regards to uh, millennial, we'll go into more um, of of what uh, the demographic actually is, but young professionals and their attitudes about transit and and where they work and live and play. And then just today, actually, um, so you're hearing this for the first time here on Transit Matters, um, a, a poll that was talking about uh, Governor Baker's approval uh, ratings and matching that up with people's sentiments about the MBTA um, mm-hmm. and what has been just done right. recently. So, Rich, why don't you, um, if, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit more, um, and then if not, we can just jump straight into kind of your summation of the first uh, the Governor Baker
2: poll. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me back on. Um, it's always fun. Uh, this is the first time we've done this, not at the MassINC offices and uh, not without. Uh, and without beer actually so this is
0: my apologies i i understand uh, no 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 there. worries <laughs> no, no
2: no not at all this is probably probably for the be better but um
0: we need to it Reminds me of a podcast <laughs> i like to listen to where they have a uh, beer like it's uh they got a sponsorship and everything and they they have beer for the guests it's a thing so yeah we need so to do that
2: we do in the office uh uh at mass inc we have some folks come in every friday afternoon for beer 30 we call it and it's uh yeah, uh, you know, we basically just sit around and talk about politics. What's been going on? In the world. Well, when
1: I was about to make my, uh, I was about to run, Rich, and, but then I, there was no one to watch the door, so yes. I, did, I didn't want you to be locked
2: out in the cold. Don't so. worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm the research director for the Massing Polling Group. I'm happy to be back. Um, we are the official pollsters for WBUR, uh, so you may hear my boss Steve Casella talking about um, the many polls that we've been doing for them about the New Hampshire primary this season. We'll probably be doing that through the New Hampshire primary, and we're writing about stuff uh, for them as well. We're also writing about uh, New Hampshire for NHPR. And um, actually, the polls that we're talking about today were not done for BUR. The, this, this poll that we have with uh, the Charlie Baker numbers and the MBTA numbers was actually um, some questions we tacked on to another statewide survey we did for another client. And uh, and then we we you know sponsored them ourselves and we then wrote it up and we put it in Commonwealth Magazine uh, this uh, today this morning it's uh, Tuesday November seventeenth uh, this is the day that we're we're talking about here so yeah so let's I mean let's get into it
1: yeah so tell I mean give us your your um I guess your highlights from the Governor Baker and the MBTA survey how how would you um, summarize it
2: yeah so it, it's it's interesting I mean the the, the the political headline um, uh, that, that people have sort of latched onto, that we latched onto, is that uh, Charlie Baker, who is a Republican governor, is extremely uh, popular in, a, in Massachusetts, which is a very blue state. Now, we do have a tendency to elect Republican governors, but the kinds of favorable numbers that we're seeing with Charlie Baker, and we've seen them previously when we've done polling uh, on him as well, and others have, have confirmed this. Are just extremely high for any politician um, national journal, which is a you know political uh, publication, wrote an article a few months ago calling Charlie Baker the most popular politician in america and um by even, the looks of even these- comparing to mayors. Um. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, we've done Marty Walsh's favorables in the city of Boston, and they are pretty much in the same range here as Charlie cool. Baker's. So maybe Mayno a switch was, was Menino,
1: I guess, a little bit higher. Or? Mayor
2: Menino was al- always did extremely well. He was in the you know the seventies for favorables. I-, I should say, for context, what we found uh, in this survey uh, was that Charlie Baker. Um, 63% of registered voters in Massachusetts have a favorable opinion of Charlie Baker. Uh, only 10% have an unfavorable. So his net favorability is 53 I mean, that is just unheard of. Um, and it kind of cuts across every single demographic that we looked at. Um, he has a 51% favorable rating, so over half of uh, Democrats. Have a favorable opinion of him. Remember, he is a Republican governor. Um, uh, and unenrolled voters who actually comprise the majority of voters in Massachusetts, um, people who are neither a Democrat nor a Republican, 79 is his split with them. So uh, I think what that that says a little bit is it, it kind of speaks to Charlie Baker's brand. Um, I think people view him as, as sort of neither a Democrat nor a Republican. Um, and he appeals to people who don't maybe don't like that kind of level of partisanship. Um, so it, it's just a, it's just a really fascinating number. It's, it's fascinating that we're now 11 months into his term and, and, you know, the honeymoon seems not to really have, have, uh, abated with them. Um, uh, we'll see how long this goes, you know, what, what, is there going to be something that kind of starts to change people's minds about him? Um, the other, the other thing that we asked about in, in the survey was about the MBTA, which we've asked, um, a lot of poll questions about the MBTA this year. We kind of started off the year asking about the MBTA with you know, the, the storms in the winter, and that was actually the first time I was on the podcast was to talk about that. So, um, you know, the interesting thing is that even though people have a high opinion of Charlie Baker um, and they approve of the way he's handling the MBTA, 52% of, um, of voters in statewide approve of the way that he's handling the MBTA, um, people don't really think the MBTA has gotten much better in the past year. Um, you know, a third say that it's stated the same 28%, so roughly the same number, think it's gotten better. Uh, 11% actually think it's gotten worse, but that's a very small number. Um, in Boston, which is where you really want to be looking at in this survey, because those are the folks who are most affected by the MBTA and, um, and know the most about the MBTA, you would expect that they probably are following the story a little bit more um, again you see you know 35% say that it stayed the same 34% think it's gotten better um, these are not outstanding numbers this is not like numbers that say the MBTA is knocking it out of the park it's going to be fine and uh, perhaps a little bit more ominously we also asked people um, whether they thought that the tea would do well if we have another winter like the one that we just had and there I mean the it, it, you know it's a yes or no question. 47% said, no, it's not going to do well if we have another winter like we had. And 54%, so a majority in Boston, do not think that it's ready for the winter if we have another winter as bad as it is. Of course, you know, there's two parts of that question, right? One is pertains to the the tea and the other pertains to the weather is anybody ready for the winter I think is, yeah. is maybe yeah. that question <laughs> that's a good point so I mean but but these are not numbers so you on the one hand you have
1: well 54% in Boston approved of the way he's handling the tea and also 54% in Boston said well probably not ready for the winter
2: yeah. so what that says to me is that you know Charlie Baker does not yet is not really sort of taking any political heat for anything about the MBTA yet um he doesn't seem to be taking a lot of political heat about anything yet. But the question is, so, if the T does have another difficult winner, does that start to eat, erode his favorable ratings at some point? And that's obviously something we'd have to look it's at.
1: It's interesting because it sort of shows, um, and I think I think the, the legislature will be paying attention to this, as I'm sure they always pay attention to these polls. Um, but it sort sure of shows that people are approving of how he's handling the T, So that bolsters um, whatever he or his fiscal management control board Want to do, but it also shows that if, if if it goes wrong, so at least so far he's got a bit of a, a Teflon approval rating when it comes to yeah. So it's it's like the, the T approval rating is separate from him, and I think that says a lot when he uh, asks to be able to do things with reform or fairs, as we know the discussion is going to be coming up in the future. Um, that's going to be really interesting because you know it shows that even if even if people continue to be dissatisfied with the service they're getting or with the improvements. Uh, this, if you do the same survey uh, in, in February, if we do have another five, you know, um, storms in a row, then I'll be interested to see what happens. Yeah, so.
2: exactly. And, and, you know, we did this survey last week. We did it before what happened in Paris. We did this before um, Governor Baker's comments about Syrian refugees this week. So, which, which more than anything that I've seen yep. in the past 10 or 11 months has really sort of caught flack from Democrats. Democrats have been really reluctant to criticize this governor so far and i think when you see 51% favorable approval among democrats it's probably because they're reacting to members of their own party who are saying oh you know i i don't really mind him i i don't i, I don't have a problem with him so don't so go easy on him but i think with this this refugee thing it seems to strike a nerve with people and i think it will be very curious to see if that number with democrats starts to move a little bit if the next time somebody does does his faves um, you know, it's
1: also an issue that I wonder if it really resonates, you know, if that's something that, um, if, if, if a week from now, the comments of, of this morning will still uh, be something that people are concerned about, you know?
2: I, I agree. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that's, that impacts people's everyday life in the same way. The one thing that I think where it may hurt him is, as I said, I think part of Charlie Baker's brand is that he's sort of this kind of nonpartisan or uh, kind of riding above partisanship in some way that he works well with Democrats Democrats like him um, he's able to get things done on Beacon Hill or it's perceived to be that way anyways um, but this is you know but this refugee thing has become a partisan issue you know it was it was Republican governors across the, the country who came out with this thing almost simultaneously mm-hmm. on the same day yesterday so uh, it, it if there were an attempt made by Democrats to to use this as a way to link, Baker to the National Republican brand, which he has very studiously avoided um, even locally maybe. he's avoiding oh um, yeah yeah, it's interesting on that because he did endorse Jeff Deal and, and campaigned for Jeff Deal when he ran down in um, um, for the state Senate seat down near Brockton this past election cycle, just, that just ended earlier this month. Um, you know Jeff Deal is of course the uh, the Republican. House member who spearheaded the effort to repeal the indexing of the gas tax to inflation so uh, which is which is an issue that Baker also endorsed when he was running for governor um, so Jeff deal is very is one of the one of the prominent kind of up-and-coming conservatives in um, in the state um, and you know if he were to have won that that seat he ended up not winning that seat um, it would have been a big win for uh, for Republicans so I think you know governor Baker is choosing his spots to Engage in partisan politics, um, you know, in support of the Republican Party. I think he wants to make the Republican Party bigger and better in, in in Massachusetts, but I, but he's also very careful not to align himself with the national party. But on this issue, this refugee refugee issue, he did he did sort of align himself, and I'll be curious to see if there's some consequences. To come Now, up.
1: you mentioned that his popular, popularity popularity uh, is relatively steady across incomes uh, as well as education levels. Um, and one of the things that I thought was interesting was that uh, it, it, he, in fact, um, the minorities and those at the lowest income level actually seem to have the most faith that the tea is ready for a hard winter, whereas more educated respondents are less confident about the upcoming winter. Now, we already talked about how that's sort of separate from, um, from his approval rating, but, but I did find that interesting that, uh, that despite the fact that his popularity goes through um, across education and income, um, the tea uh, people's ideas about whether the tea is ready does not necessarily um, go steady across you know, education and, and income. So
2: yeah, that's true, and that could have something to do with um, kind of the ne- the information flow we, in, in polling. We think a little bit about you know when you're polling an issue, what is is the information that people are hearing about the issue positive or negative more. Um, it tends to be that voters who are kind of higher up on the socioeconomic scale, so higher education, higher income, are also more likely to probably be paying attention to issues in the news. Um, and most of the information flow about the MBTA has been negative, as you know, we all know. Um, the interesting thing is that it's been a concerted effort from the folks at the T and I think, and I think the Baker administration – to, to get out all of this stuff about the tea. And, and, and we wrote a little bit about this in our, in our story for Commonwealth today. Um, it seems we don't know why they're doing it. I mean, every time there's a control board meeting where there's going to be something bad, they, there's a story in the Globe the morning of. So they've clearly given that information to somebody to write a story. Um, but it seems like there's a little bit of a clearing the decks going on here saying, you know, we know that there's problems with the tea. Let's get them out there and, and, and be transparent and sort of air them. Um, but I think that that does something else, and I think that this has something to do with why Charlie Baker's favorables and his approval is disconnected from the T. Every time there's information about how bad things are at the T, it sort of serves to sort of distance the governor. It's, it kind of creates this impression, I think, um, that the problems at the T are deep-seated and precede him, um, and it's a problem that's going to take a long time to fix. So there's a little bit of managing expectations going on. Uh, as a result, you know, Charlie Baker can be seen as doing the right things and, and airing the dirty laundry and starting the process, but not yet uh, being um, blamed or seen as holding the bag by voters when, you know, um, when they're sort of evaluating his performance vis-a-vis the performance of the team. So it's it's interesting. Uh, I think that that accounts in part for the differences in education and in, in income is that you, you have a lot of negative stories and I think those negative stories serve to kind of create a little bit of a distance between Baker and, and, and the MBTA.
0: I think what's interesting is, is that, I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, in Massachusetts politics, you know, Boston is a region where change takes a very, very long time. And so a year is, is not a lot of time. And I think, I think now what's, what's happening now is it's, it's okay. Yeah, he's, he's going through and, and the board is, you know, is going through and seeing what's wrong. And, you know, and, you know, where is that line? How long does it take? You know before that that becomes then people start to blame him like you say, we have another winter. Yeah. another thing I'm thinking of is is that there's sort of two groups of people when it when it comes to um thoughts of whether the tea is really is um ready for the next winter um you have the people who don't ride the tea and they see this media coverage and stuff that you're talking about that you know yeah, they're taking a big look and they're you know going through and they're, so it's only a year in, so that sounds good um and then you have the people who ride the tea in you know like. I mean, I don't want to generalize too much here, but there's a significant group of people who ride the T who see that pretty much it's pretty much the same as it was a year ago, right? I mean, in terms of the operation and everything. So people say, "Well, okay, well, nothing has changed." Well, what's okay? Yeah, they're putting some third rail and stuff, but yeah, I mean,
1: a lot of a lot of the T riders have been they've had a summer of inconvenience, whether it's evening shuttles or weekend shuttles or different things like that because of the new the power yeah. upgrades on the red and orange lines and the track upgrades and things like that yeah um, but but yeah you know I, I I kind of had said something you know rich I had made the point to you that I thought that was interesting that um, because I was sort of correlating the uh, lower income uh, respondents with um, T riders and right. and saying okay well it's weird that they have more faith if they're the ones that are writing all the time so maybe it's the fact that the T, has been so public about their efforts, and then you 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 made a good point where you said, "Well, actually, remember this is a statewide survey, um, and and actually, as you s- skew further west and more rural, that's where you're getting more of the lower income respondents. So they may actually not be T-riders at all."
2: Yeah, um, I don't, and I don't know actually. Like, I'd have to cross the income by the by region and see kind of um, what's going on there. Um, but if you just think about kind of where wealth is concentrated in, in Massachusetts, there's a lot there's a lot of economic activity going on in Boston, so I wouldn't be surprised if you know at least a, a, some portion of those lower-income, lower-education folks are actually not in Boston, not using the T. The other, the, but the other thing that that kind of brings up is is um, because the T is is a is a regional, local Boston issue for the people who ride it. It's a state issue as a matter of politics and policy because it's really mostly funded by the state. So when you ask somebody. In Pittsfield versus someone in Boston, if you approve or disapprove of the way Charlie Baker is handling the tea, they have very different interpretations of that question. right? Mm -hmm. Somebody in Boston is thinking about their commute and and whether or not the tea is working for them. Somebody in Pittsfield may be thinking about the, the impact of the tea on the state's budget. And whether or not they're thinking Charlie,
1: money that's going to Boston as opposed to money that's going to Western Mass. Correct. Right. So.
2: Yeah. Well, maybe. Maybe they're more concerned that Charlie Baker holds the line on spending at the T until things get improved, which has been his, um, you know, his talking point about all of this. So it's a very you know,
0: difficult question to ask because. It's, it's almost like it's a, it's a. It's a very strange question to ask because you get a variety of responses depending on the bias of the, of the respondent.
2: Well, it is a difficult question to ask, but it's also an important question because there is. It is does tell you something overall about the attitude of the public towards what he's doing. Um, and you can. And it also, if you look at the regional splits, there's not a huge. There's not a ton of variation there on that. Um, a little bit of variation, but not a ton of variation yeah. on that. I think that I think the main thing though to keep in mind is that when you're doing a statewide, looking at a statewide survey like this, you know, the T is a, is something that's serving a portion of the state, but is being paid for by everybody. And this is the classic problem with the T: is that mm-hmm. you know the governor is, is is needing to balance the needs of the entire Commonwealth and people who don't use the T versus people who very much need to use the T. Um, uh, and that costs a lot of money to fix. We know it's going to cost a lot of money to fix.
0: And yeah. I'd love to see a, an effort by, whether, I don't know who, who this would be, but as we've talked about before, that there is really no effort being made to let people know that you know the tea is important because it supports the economy, it helps people who need to use it, and, you know, and, and it, it, it's important to the state. It's not just important to the people who use it, and I think that message I mean, it probably hasn't gotten out there. So, you know, of course people in the in western mass might be thinking about the budget, right? They might be thinking about, oh, you know, the the meat but they see on the TV and also, yeah, what am I what am I getting out of it? Whereas it's it's this this ongoing. It is a very local uh
1: it's it's a very indirect connection, I think, because we don't have excellent uh east-west connections um when it comes to roads or transit uh in the state. And so sort of the, the, the feedback is indirect when it comes to benefit because it sort of trickles through, I don't want to use the word trickle down or anything like that, but it comes through, so goes Boston economically, mm-hmm. um, which much of that today hinges on the MBTA. Um, economically, even at, at the Route 128 level, um, the ability of, of the economy to grow here definitely affects um, the local, what do they call the local impact tax, the... the um, um, what are the local um, allowances that go go from the state back to the the oh. um, cities and towns? I'm forgetting what they're local aid. Local well, aid, right? Local little, aid. There's right.
2: Chapter seventy for schools. There's chapter ninety for local roads. There's a whole whole exactly. slew of transfer payments and things that go. So on. that may be
1: the yeah. indirect yeah. feedback that people get about um, you know the transportation network in eastern Massachusetts takes the form of local aid in western yeah. Massachusetts, even though it doesn't take the form of a better connection. Um, yeah,
2: a, a certain, um, it's funny you mention that, As a certain state senator who shall remain nameless um, uh, has long, who is who is a, a Boston area person and a, a backer of the T, um, uh, has long said, I would love to see, you know, the outlaws and in, inlays and pieces, like who, what, what parts, similar to, you know, they do this on the federal level, what states are kind of the net payers versus the net, fees exactly, when it comes right. to taxes, right? So who's paying more in taxes than they're getting from the federal government and vice versa? You know, His theory is that uh, we're probably generating a lot more tax revenue from economic activity in the MBTA area that is flowing out and, and essentially subsidizing other parts of the state mm-hmm. that don't get the MBTA and that that would then be a case for investing in the MBTA. Um, and for, I don't you, know, know this,
0: this, you know, debunking this argument of like, oh, we send all our money to Boston because that's just not true. Yeah.
2: We did ask in a poll earlier this year, you know, kind of put it as a, an either or statement. You know, do you think that the MBTA is a statewide asset that should be paid for by the entire state, or do you think the T is a regional asset that should basically be paid for by the parts of the state that use it? And sur- kind of surprisingly to me, um, it came back with more people thinking the first than the second. So there is some sense that people do understand that this is – that, that at, so goes Boston, so goes the MBTA region, so goes the rest of the right. state. Um, there is a little bit of evidence of that. I think also, you know, just the winter last year did convince people that there is a connection between the health of the economy and the health of the tea, and they, they saw what happened when people could not get to work. But I think that's, that message has been – started started to recede a little bit, and also – other messages and other lessons have kind of come out of that whole practice. You know, all of the postmortems and studies have sort of put the onus more on, um, you know, performance at the T and less about the value of the T. So it, it is a message that perhaps should be, that people who care about transit ought to be thinking about getting out there a little bit more.
1: The, the last thing as we segue into the next poll is that I just noted that, uh, the governor is definitely having a higher approval rating. I would say a notably higher approval rating um, um, among older voters, um, which uh, I think is, is notable just for the fact that what we're going to talk about next is the younger, um, young professionals. Um, so, so even though the, even though the um, the approval rating is high, seemingly across the board, it is higher among the older, um, over fifty crowd, um, which also tends to vote more. Um, so.
2: Yeah. No, it's a good—I mean, if if you had to choose being having a higher approval rating with older voters or younger voters, you would, if you were a politician, you would want the older voters because the older voters are the ones who are going to show up and vote, particularly in the non-presidential election years, which is when we elect governors in Massachusetts. And I will say, though, that even among 18- to 29-year-olds, you know, Baker's got a 47-18 split. I mean, that's still really good. I mean, the 47 could be a little bit higher, It's you know, but it's— it. it, it when you compare it to the unfavorable, it's a very, very good number for him. And uh, again, yeah, it's just you know, extremely strong. Um, you just don't see politicians with numbers like this very often.
1: Well, uh, I guess we'll see how that gets him through the next winter. Um, and now let's let's move on to why don't we go ahead, Rich? You can introduce uh, your next ULI um, poll um, or that was done for ULI. Um, with regard to younger professionals, and uh, I'll probably mistakenly use the term
2: millennials multiple times (laughs) throughout the podcast, but I'll let you go ahead and tell us why that's the wrong thing um, for me to be saying. Yeah, so this is an interesting survey. We were approached um, by the Urban Land Institute, uh, um, who you may know in the transit world is the folks who did the Hub and Spoke report a few years ago with uh, Stephanie Pollack before she became Secretary Pollack. Um, I actually worked on that report because that was a joint effort between a better city where I used to work, ULI and Northeastern, um, and uh, and that's actually kind of how I know ULI. So ULI called us and they said we're doing this young professionals survey. Um, can you help us take a look at what we have and and we're looking to distribute this, you know, kind of via. Um, Via our networks, basically, v- you know, via c- civic groups and, and business groups in the city of Boston, and, and we, you know, have a little bit of a network in that. So we said sure. Um, so we, you know, we revised the survey, we expanded the survey in some respects, and uh, came up with some uh, some interesting ideas. And then we um, kind of sent it out into the world as an online survey via email, and we sent it to our lists. They sent it to their lists. We contacted a bunch of other business groups and civic groups, and we used social media and we did a Facebook ad um, to get people to, to, to take it. And um, this is not a representative sample by any means. It's not the same as when we go out and poll 500 voters and are matching the demographics of those voters to the, the demographics of voters in the entire state so that we can say with certainty that, that you know when Charlie Baker has a 63% favorable rating, it, that is representative of everybody. Um, what this really is, it, it's better almost to think of this as sort of a market research or a market segment exercise. What we were looking for, or what we got, was really kind of well-educated, pretty well-off young professionals in um, the Greater Boston area. People living and working in the Greater Boston area, very concentrated, actually, kind of in the urban core. You know, we got a lot of people who are living in Boston, Cambridge, and Somerville. And we got a ton of people who are working in Boston. So again, we talk about that kind of Boston as the economic engine. That really came through in the results of the people who took this survey. Um, uh, the age group that we used for this um, was 20 to 37, which is a very broad range. The reason we chose that was um, ULI had used that range on a previous survey. You know, ULI San Francisco or ULI National had done it, and we wanted to kind of have a comparable. Um, uh, but within that there's multitudes right so you've got people who are just getting out of college and starting their careers all the way up to people who are you know um starting families or even have families and um what we found in the results is there are some really interesting differences between um those groups um as you go through sort of the things that they compare uh, so overall we got 660 people, um, who took the survey to enough level of completeness that we were able to analyze their results. And, um, and that allowed us, uh, again, you know, having more respondents doesn't make it any more representative of anything, but it does allow for some interesting breakdowns and splits. So we were able to split down to almost the neighborhood level in terms of where people were working in downtown Boston. Um. And one thing that jumps out what jumped out to me when I was analyzing the results is that it's you can see how bad the commutes are into the South Boston waterfront because the average commute time there is higher by a good margin than pretty much any of the other you know neighborhoods or or areas where people are work coming into work um, and again it's it's something we all know already you know there have been studies about that, but the results kind of confirm that and um, when you see results like that confirm you kind of know you're sort of on the right track in terms of, you know, who you talk to and the kinds of responses that you're getting.
1: Yeah, you also, um, you controlled to basically get, this, these are all folks who have a college degree. So even though it's yes. 20 to 37, um, I guess maybe there's some 20-year-olds who had already completed college. I know I think I was 22 or something like that when I completed college. But, yeah. but it's, it's definitely, I noticed that the bulk were, 75% were between 25 and 33 Yes, and 11% right. were younger than 25, and 15% were older than
2: 33.
0: Yeah, that's right,
2: and that's actually probably a pretty you know that middle group is really kind of you know if you're if a more traditional definition of millennial is probably a pretty good pretty good categorization there. Um, you're right. We did screen out undergraduates. Um, the reason we did that is because well, Boston has a lot of students, but that wasn't who you I wanted to talk to. You I wanted to talk to people who were sort of out in the world, kind of starting their careers and. Frankly, people who either are or are going to be kind of the market for um, you know the real estate interests that ULI represents. So ULI represents people who are investing money in commercial and residential real estate, and they're building these you know luxury condo towers and apartment towers in Boston and other kinds of housing. They're also building. Workplaces, and we asked some questions about what these young professionals liked in a workplace too, because we wanted to to understand that. So, keeping that in
1: mind, it's really interesting because um, if you're thinking about this is sort of produced for developers um, and and such, uh, I I thought it was interesting um, to jump to jump ahead so we can come back though, it, mm-hmm. just that um, despite a lot of the marketing we see about um, the amenities of new buildings being built. Um, the majority didn't seem to care too much about uh, a lot of the like doormen or gyms or things like that being built into their apartment buildings, so yeah, I thought that was that was interesting. so these the, the group that funded the survey is, is definitely going to be getting a lot of very useful information it seems like
2: yeah they, yeah they um, we had a great event with them last week where uh, we presented the results um, with uh, the young leaders group that they have there that this sort of you know was our our client, if you will, on the project. Um, and they had a panel discussion, and they had some you know folks who are architects and you know in the real estate biz they had john Greeley from the b r a who's a great guy who does um he actually got a title bump now he's got a very impressive like senior planner in terms of something or other, but he's a great guy. he's about my age and you know kind of on the tail end of this this cohort that we that we um that we surveyed um but yeah the you know the way that we approached it is we wanted to kind of ask some questions that. Some icebreaker questions about you know what's your perception of this idea of millennials or this this label millennials then we got into questions about how millennials are getting around which is probably the most relevant for for this podcast um, but also asked them then about their workplace preferences um, how they their neighborhood preferences like how they choose where they want to live if they could um, or what they look for in a place to live um, and then their kind of home choice so, drilling down even further to, you know, what kind of housing are you looking to have? Are you looking to buy? Are you renting? Um, are you ever going to leave for the suburbs? Or are you going to be, you know, kind of a permanent um, urban dweller? Uh, and and it, it's in, it, you know it's interesting. One of the through themes that kind of came through in all of those different sections of the survey was the importance of transit. Um you know, it's it's the mode of choice for these for these millennials. Excuse me, not millennials, young professionals really, in terms of how they're getting around the city. Um, a lot of them, I should say, do have access to a car, either their own car or they're sharing a car with a significant other or another person in their household. So these are choice riders of the MBTA. They're that are um, that are choosing to get around by transit for whatever reason because they prefer it. They just don't want to deal with the hassle of a car or parking or the traffic. Um, but the T is important to them. It's important to them in terms of how they get around, in terms of um, where they want to work. Uh, location and transit was far and away the most important thing that they said w- uh, was key to their choice, you know, their, their satisfaction with where they were working. Um, and transportation-related issues also came up in terms of where they chose uh, a neighborhood. And by that, I mean access to transit, you know, um, commute time as it relates to where they're commuting to work. And then finally walkability, um, walkability was a really key thing. Also 40% of, um, the people that we talked to were, uh, walking at least part of their commute. Um, so walkability is, is, is kind of part and parcel with transit and all this discussion. I want to make
1: sure we talk more about that later because I was very interested in the breakdown. It was a check all that apply kind of mm-hmm. question as far as you know, what kind of modes do you use to get to work, but there was a lot of walkability there and a lot more biking than I expected. Yeah. Um, so I can't wait to get to that, but I did want to say um, before we get off, so, so um, jumping off of the point that you just had about um, the theme that goes through, So even when it wasn't a straightforward question about a transit preference, the preferences they were expressing as far as land use, whether it's land use for where they work, uh, where they play, or where they live, those preferences uh, were either were, were still indirectly dependent upon transit or yeah. dependent upon a land use pattern um, that benefits from transit. So that's kind of the theme that runs through this, which is very yeah, interesting absolutely. for our transit interested audience. So, And the other thing to note just about the, the respondents before we do move on, it was that when you say they're educated, that's almost an understatement. Um, Forty-six percent um, had had completed, you know, only college, um, whereas uh, more than fifty percent had a MBA, law degree, or another postgrad or doctoral um, yeah. studies. So, so, so more than fifty percent of this group is has a degree beyond just a, a BA or a BS. Yeah,
2: this group is putting the professional and young professional. It really is. And and again, you could you could knock the survey and say, well, you're only talking to a small segment. But think about for a second like what that segment means for a group like ULI again it's like this is your market these are the people that you want you know to keep in the city of Boston to be buying real estate to be working in the places that you're designing and building Um, they're also politically important I mean these are folks who are plugged in they're involved in business groups and civic associations almost by definition because that's how we contacted them Um, so most likely these are folks who are going to be you know kind of moving on to you know to, to be involved politically in the city too, so you know the opinion that these folks have is more likely to kind of get amplified and sent through you know political discussions than than perhaps other. It's sad to say, but but than perhaps other folks you know that you might you know talk to on a survey. I, mean, I think
0: that's an important that's an important thing because you know as we as we think about how people are, are moving around and where people are living, especially I mean you see from this that you ninety know, percent. These people, those people who responded to the survey are white, and you parallel that you know, you put that together with the levels of education. And you know, 30 percent of these people are have household income more than a hundred thousand, which is just that's just insane for, 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 the, for the bulk so, <laughs> of the 23 year olds. <laughs> right. that's,
1: that's notable that their right. the household income is over a hundred thousand. So, yes, but yes, you but also see here tw-
0: only 12 percent from outside Ruby 128, and a full quarter of, of these people that live in downtown Boston, which. You know, it's like, okay, so if you, if living in downtown Boston, I mean, you have to make a lot of money to live in downtown Boston right now. And so it's just sort of, it, it sort of, it would be interesting to see similar results for other, for, you know, um, 25, 20 to 37 people, avoiding the M word, um, throughout the city without, uh, you know, for, for the rest of them. And then we could see, you know, how this speaks to land use and housing. Well, and we'll also
1: see as far as the ones living downtown, they're also, um, as as we can talk about more, they're living with roommates. It's not that they're paying for a necessarily a one-room apartment, you know, by themselves. Many of them are, are living with uh, multiple roommates, and they express that they do that because of affordability issues.
2: Yeah, you know, that was really interesting to me. It's like, you're absolutely right. Like, again, I don't want to... Belittle the survey because I think it, it still tells you something important. You just need to put it in the right context, which is that this is not everybody. It's but it's but it's a slice, and the, but it's a slice that that you know is interesting in a way. It's almost like more millennial than millennial than millennials really are. It's sort know? of the stereotypical yeah, like yeah. media representation. This is this of is your Mike Ross column millennial here. You know, <laughs> people are very urban and living in these towers downtown, and you yeah. know. Uh, they do exist. We found them, and we asked them questions, and they really like the tea. That's that's kind of the gist of what of what we found. But um, they afforded. But so this is interesting. As you said, they're making a lot more money than most people are. They're doing very well. They had much less student debt than I was expecting um, them to have because we asked them that question. Overall, I mean, thirty-two
1: percent only thirty-two percent owed more than twenty-five thousand in student loans. Yeah,
2: we asked them right off the bat. Do you think that you're better off financially than your parents? Uh, went uh, you know when they were your age um and you know forty six of them forty six percent said that they were better off for only twenty seven percent thought that they were worse off um mm-hmm. so that's a pretty you know these are people who are doing pretty good, but right. <laughs> at the same time, as you said, there's a large number of them who are living with roommates, and when you ask them why are you living with roommates you know sixty uh, sixty some odd percent of them said, well it's because I can't afford to live on
1: my own. specifically it said. It allowed them to afford to live in a more preferable neighborhood than yeah. they could afford otherwise, which is very interesting because they're willing to compromise personal space, although none of them want to share a bathroom. That came up in the shared housing question,
2: but <laughs> yeah.
1: um, they don't want to share a bathroom, but as long as they get, you know, as long as they don't have to do that, at least share a bathroom with, you know, uh, I think another unit maybe, but the, the point being that they're willing to give up some space and they're willing to give up some 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 personal space in order to be able to live in a place that they really want to live in, that has that walkability. Yeah, ability.
2: exactly. That was one of those multiple, you know, check all that apply questions. So we asked them. It's like we asked the people, just the people who have roommates. It's like, would you, be, you know, why do you live with a roommate? So yeah, you're right. 70 some odd percent said it was because they could afford more space. Seven, you know, another a similar percent said that it was because they could afford to live in a better neighborhood or a neighborhood that they considered to be more more lively. But sixty-five percent of them, so almost two-thirds, basically, were said that they literally couldn't afford to live on their own. So that says something about affordability in Boston. This group of people who are doing very well are having those sorts of, of, of constraints. You know, we, asked, we also asked a question about... Um,
1: well, 59% said it's more fun to live with other people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And again, they could check multiple <laughs> options, right? Yeah, but like, I agree. But when we, when we asked those roommates, those people who had roommates who were living with their parents, a very small percent were living with their parents in this survey, um, 3%. What, 3% if, yeah. if you could live on your own, like if, if money wasn't an object, would you choose to live on your own? 56% of them said, yes, we would prefer to live on their own. So there is this sort of um, – Sort of talking to both sides of their mouth yeah. almost about well, that. Not, no, right. no, not necessarily. I think that it's, it's um, you know – there's been studies on millennials, particularly when the economy was worse, about sort of the delayed family formation, household formation has been very delayed – and, and because of the economy. And I think you see that a little bit. There are folks out there who would like to go out and kind of make their own way and, and you know, have, uh, be out on their own, but they can't for, for economic reasons. I mean, there are other numbers that kind of bring out this affordability. But it effect. almost
1: seems like the preference is to live where they want as opposed to live on their own. Because they could yeah. live on their own if they lived far enough away and willing to commute far enough. But when you add those mm-hmm. factors all together, they want to live closer to work in a preferable place.
2: Yeah, but I'm again like sixty five percent of them were let me double check what the actual question was, but um literally obviously sixty five percent of them said I can't afford to live on my own. So yes, they do like they, they you know, there are ancillary reasons, but for yeah. a a good chunk of those folks who are living with roommates, there's 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 money is a big problem. Yeah. Um, you know, 27% of the people that we talked to said that they've been priced out of a home by rent increases in the last five years, i.e. you're living in a place, you're living in an apartment, you like it, you don't want to move. Landlord comes in and says, I'm going to raise the rents or I'm going to turn this into condos or something like that. Twenty-seven percent of the people, in, in, again, a pretty well-off co- in cohort this Subset, thinking, yeah. yeah. So imagine what that is for the rest of the population. Well, yeah, for the for, the for the for the subset yeah. that was that makes less than fifty thousand dollars a year, forty percent of them said that they've been priced out. So, mm-hmm. there are some incredible financial pressures going on here that we're seeing, even and, and even a more relatively relevant, right? yeah, yeah. Which and, I, and, I'm and that was also
1: good. interesting because I I'm not seeing the number right now, but there was uh, oh. The average income spent on housing was 20, I think it was the average, the mean spent on income, the mean of income spent on housing was 28%, and only 33% of respondents spent more than 30% on rent or mortgage. So that was actually a little lower than I expected, but you know that is among a more affluent subset of the population. So.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of those things where the the percent goes down the higher your income yeah. is, right? Because you've got more money to spend. So you know, if you're looking at the lower end of the scale, you're going to see like a higher percent going to going to those things. But even so, so even though
1: even even though only 33 percent are spending more than thirty percent on a rent or mortgage, uh, there was still, like you said, around thirty percent. I guess that I guess that comes out about right. You said about thirty percent. Um, said that they had moved because they were priced out of the The rent got raised and it couldn't... I guess that makes sense. Okay, anyway. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about the commute. We have... There's so much to talk about. We could spend all evening. Um, So, the commute. Um, and first of all... Uh, so, I saw that 97% said they commuted, which I thought... I kind of surprised me. Um, that, you know, there weren't other... So, I guess... What was the, what's the definition of commute? And you know, do you, do you get into that at all? Because I, I wonder as far as uh, does that mean they commute every day? Um, you know, are they not? None of them are working at home. None of them have well, flexible I mean, arrangements.
2: Yeah. Well, we asked it pretty broadly. We just said, do you commute to work or school? You're right. I mean, you know, there could be people who are flexing it or you know commuting some days or commuting. Uh, working from home to other days. But I think I would in- interpret this pretty broadly that this is people who are leaving their home and going to a place of work at some, you know, at some point during the week. Um, so that may explain why it's such a high number. But I think also, again, it speaks to the fact that we're talking to people who are kind of out there in the workforce or not, um, or in grad school, we allowed that as well. But, you know, for the most part, the people we reached via the ways that we reached them were people who are kind of plugged in and working in, you know, professions and things like that. Um, so yeah, they, 97% are commuting. So virtually all the people we talk to are commuting. Um, on average, it's taking them about 34 minutes to get to their, to get to their place of work. Um, as I noted, there is some, some variation in that. Um, people who live in downtown Boston or in Cambridge and Somerville are having the shortest commutes. People who actually live in the other Boston neighborhoods, like Jamaica Plain, Rossendale, West Roxbury... Dorchester, Alton, also Brighton actually have longer commutes than the people who live in Cambridge and Somerville, which kind of makes intuitive sense. But again, it kind of what's the difference? It's the red line, you know. I mean, right. that's that you know that the red line and the orange line are taking people in from those places, and those transit options are not as you know prevalent in those other parts of the city. About the um,
1: same number it seemed like had less than twenty minute commute as had the thirty one to forty five minute commute. So there was there was seemed to be some equity. Among the, the way the, the splits on the commute times,
2: Yeah, pretty much. I mean you know it, it cluster yeah, it, it you know it clusters around that that number pretty well, but um, it also depended on where you were going to work, right? So as I mentioned, you know the South Boston waterfront had a, had a, a the highest average commute out of all of the different neighborhoods that we were able to analyze um, in terms of places where people were working. and again, most of the people in the survey, a lot of these people in the survey are coming into the city of Boston to work. Um, And we were able to break it out because we had so many of them coming in to break it out into these different neighborhoods. Um, But the big takeaway here is, you know, we so we asked people in a a multiple choice, multiple response question, you know, how do you get to work or school? We wanted to, we did that because we wanted to understand if people were driving part of the way and then taking the T or walking part of the way or you know so on and so forth. So these numbers add up to more than one hundred percent. But the top choice, 49% of people were taking the T subway, like the red or the orange or blue or the green line. Um, and then from, and then, but, but also 40% are walking at least part of their commute. Um, the drive alone number was, was relatively low. Only 20, only a quarter, a quarter of the people were driving by themselves. Um, which I believe is lower than if you were to actually look at the American community survey and, you know the percentage of people who are driving along for this area um, oh, yeah. about the yeah. same number 24 percent were taking the MBTA bus or silver lines as part of their commute and 22 percent which is not far far below that are riding a bike which is higher much higher than what you'd see if you were looking much at ACS. much higher much yeah. much higher than than what you'd see if you're looking at ACS data so is there any way to
1: know whether these like who was taking the subway and then riding the bike the last mile or you know those kinds of things because You know, what what would you say the walk number was? It was almost 40% were walking a significant portion of their commute. Mm -hmm. I mean, do we have any idea of how many people that that is that were walking the entire commute versus people who were, you know, walking from South Station to somewhere in the financial district?
2: I don't have – I could run that cross tabulation I just haven't done it. So it it, it is something you can analyze. You could basically look and see, well – how many of the people who are, who say that they walked also did this other mode and sort of see what the nexus is between those things? I just don't have it. I would assume that your your walkers are also pretty heavily correlated with your transit riders, right? Um, and I would be curious to see who's driving alone to a T stop out in the suburbs. I bet that's a that's a pattern that is pretty prevalent out in the people who are living further out. But I don't know that because we haven't analyzed it to that to that level. Um, so as you would expect from a group that, you know, is very heavily, leaning very heavily on transit for their commuting, um, transit-related issues kind of weigh very heavily on their decision of how to, how to get to work or school. So the top thing, the thing that was most important to people um, in terms of deciding how they were going to get around was um, their proximity to, uh, to the bus or the train, whether there's a bus stop or train stop near where they work. So if there is that... It seems that they want to use that. They want to take that. And if they don't have that, then they have to do something else. But following right after that was reliability, right? So it's not just a matter of whether whether you could get a bus or a train, but it was also whether that bus or train is going to come and get you, you know, on the right time and whether you're going to get to work mm-hmm. on the on the right schedule. So this yeah. kind of speaks a little bit to the importance of actually maintaining the system. It's not just enough to have a bus stop or have a have a t stop. Um, well,
0: I'll just point out real quick that there's a. a thing in um because usa today recently they talked about a, a study that came out that i don't seem to shock a lot of people i don't, I don't know why but it was uh, that you know reliability like the people love the convenience of public transit but they wish it was more reliable and that was you know this goes to that
2: yeah i think that's true i mean you know the convenience kind of coral it's a little bit like the proximity you know be able to walk out your door and get on a bus but if that bus is not going to get you to to work reliably and you can't you can't know that you 're going to get to your your destination when you 're supposed to get to your destination it's going to be something that 's going to going to hit you and that and then you know that relates to the next thing travel time travel time is a huge issue so and that kind of cuts across the board right that 's you know for people who are taking transit versus driving versus other things it 's kind of notable also to look at the things that did a little bit less well in terms of um, people 's preferences the you know um, people are a little bit less concerned about parking they're less concerned about needing their car to go run an errand before or after to work or school i will say that those numbers go up more uh for the older cohort the people who are kind of on the tail end of this uh this quasi generation that we looked at the 34 to 37 set um a lot of them already have kids and um and for them it seems as soon as you have kids it the 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 car ownership goes up and the concern about driving goes up a lot more. So, again, you're looking at kind of an age bracket that kind of straddles between, you know, very young, kind of unattached folks all the way up to people who are, uh, you know, starting or having families already. Um, And that does seem to sort of weigh on their decisions in terms of how they get around.
1: Um, You know, 57% said that a safe route to bike is very or somewhat um, important. Yeah, um, you know that was interesting because although so twenty four percent rode their bikes to work, um, which I was just or twenty two percent, which I was astounded that the number was that high. But then to see that fifty seven even even though only twenty two percent ride, fifty seven percent say that the the route um, a safe biking route is important. And then later fifty eight percent also say that bike amenities are very important in workplace satisfaction. Yeah, so the, b- biking seems to have a very outsized. Um, Level of, of preference, um, e- even more so than their actual use of the bicycle.
0: I think this yeah. kind of goes to that. Doesn't this kind of go to that uh, the thing with, the, with the, the interested but concerned, right? It was that sixty percent of people that um, that want a bike but they just don't feel safe. I don't yeah, goes to that.
2: I think that's true. I think that I think that you could look at this as a little bit of evidence for a potential mode shift here to say that you you have some people who are maybe interested I'd have to what I'd like to do is actually correlate that with how they actually get around now mm-hmm. so are these the bikers who are already biking who say that this is a concern for them or is it the non-bikers yes. maybe they're like me yeah. and they're
1: always thinking I probably will bike someday so it's really important to me <laughs> Yeah, um, but yeah. usually I'm just going to take the tea. <laughs> yeah
2: but I mean if it's if it's the folks like you then they're there may be a case to be said that if we make the biking safer, if you build it, if you will, they will come. And that has been the evidence in other cities that have built the protected lanes that they see an increase in the ridership along those routes and stuff like that. So... um you know, I think that there may be a little bit of that going on as well. You know, only
1: 34 uh, – let me look at the right number here. Only 34 – 35% said that the cost of the commute was very important. Now, that included parking as well as transit passes and gas. Yeah. And I thought maybe maybe that's something to do with the fact that a, such a small percent were, um, were actually driving and such a small percent was – I think, I think only 13% was taking the commuter rail. So that's the only place where we really have variable pricing in our transit. So maybe that was one of the reasons – that cost didn't become such a factor.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's still, you know, I would say it's definitely kind of in the top, you know, five concerns out of the nine or so that we tested. It's in the middle of the pack, but kind of top of the middle of the pack. So, uh, you know, in terms of how I would rate these these things, but it's but definitely, um, definitely less important to this group. And again, we're talking about relatively well-off people, so cost may not be as much of a concern as if you were talking to people who are kind of in the lower end of the scale. Um, you know, one thing to look at would be how does that, you know, do people on the lower end of the scale care more about cost than, than folks who are higher up but it seems as if right now cost is not weighing as heavily on them as just you know, is there a bus or train, can I get on that bus and train, is it going to get me to where I want to be and how long it's going to take me
0: So what you're saying is sort of counterintuitive to the dominant narrative um, in, in other words people are choosing to commute by transit or, or to biking, those people that are biking or walk or, you know, they're not, whereas the dominant narrative is that, you know, people take public transit because they can't afford a car.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that what this survey is saying, again, well off people, 70 some odd percent of these people either have their own car or share a car with somebody else. And then another percent have access to zip
1: car. 18% claim zip car, uh, yeah. which I thought was lower than, than I expected, but.
2: I mean, you know, when you take all those together, you're talking about virtually everybody who took this survey has some access to a car. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the mode split, relatively few of those people are choosing to drive by themselves. So these are choice riders of the MBTA. As I said, they exist. You know, we found them. We asked them questions. It doesn't mean that, like, everybody is a choice rider of the MBTA. And they're they're,
1: they're choice riders, and they're not – they they can afford to take Uber, Lyft, and Bridge more often than they are. That was that, I thought that was really interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean that you know we that's a whole other discussion. We asked some questions about um, uh, the use of kind of kind of adoption of of these new rideshare services and um, and also how they should be regulated. So it's kind of an, this is one of my favorite statistics in in the entire survey is that the number of the percentage of people who have used Uber um, and we didn't put a you know, we didn't bound this by a time limit. It's kind of like, have you ever used these services? The percentage of people who have used Uber, 84% of these folks have used Uber. 89% have used a traditional taxi cab. If you look at the, the youngest cohort here, the people who are um, 20 to 24, 92% of them have used Uber and only 88% have used a taxi cab. So more of those people are now using Uber than have used a taxi cab. Um that's a, I mean, that is an amazing, considering that Uber has not been around for a very long time and taxis have been around since right. for, forever, mm-hmm. um, that, that, I found that to be a staggering statistic. Well, it's
0: not that much different, right? When you say 94 and
2: 88%? Yeah, no, but I mean, just the fact that it's... It, just the, the, that more people, oh, yeah.
1: more, yeah. more of them are using a car sharing service or right. Uber than are using...
2: Yeah. But how old is Uber? It's like yeah. five years old or something like that? Yeah. And to have that level of adoption with this... The cohort right. of people. Is, I think that's
0: just a factor of the type of people that we're talking about here.
2: Sure, absolutely, but it's also you know it means that Uber is is you know succeeding is succeeding. Um, and then we asked folks because this is a kind of a hot topic on Beacon Hill, or at least it was when we wrote the survey. Um, you know, how should we regulate these things, right? So you know, the taxi industry thinks that it's unfair that they're competing with Uber. Um, you know, Uber and Lyft say don't regulate us like taxis. Well. Only 9% of people think that Uber and Lyft should be regulated more like taxis. Three times as many, 27%, think that the taxis should actually be deregulated so that they can be more like Uber and Lyft. And then 37% kind of thought, well, you know, we should fix them both. You know, we should make the taxis taxis better regulated because there's problems there and we should do something about Uber and Lyft, you know, kind of. it's kind of a sort of a cop-out answer but i mean that's like like, that's like basically saying that like you know that if you if you think that the taxi that
0: the current taxi regulation system is is a a model you know it's perfect then like i I think you're just not paying attention to that so but, but but there's also i mean there's big problems with uber and lyft as we discussed so i think you know yeah it's saying that they're both i think it's more more of a nuanced position to say that
1: That one's skewed by age also, though. The younger respondents were less likely to think that Uber and Lyft needed any regulation and were also less likely to have really any concern about the taxis, whereas the older respondents were more likely to favor changes of regulation to both models.
2: Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's true. And I, I, I kind of wish I almost didn't have that third option in the, <laughs> in in the question. We also asked, you know, sh- there should be no changes made. And eighteen percent said there should be no changes made. But um, I, I kind of wish I just made it an either or and just forced people yeah. to choose. Should you do you choose regulation or deregulation? But you know, the the, yeah. the numbers here suggest people would rather see deregulation. I noticed
1: that that men or. were more likely to think the taxis should be be deregulated to better compete. So 32% of men versus 23% of women favor deregulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that says anything, you know, but it does. Well, I, I don't thought know. it was significant. I mean,
2: there there is a classic gender split in political polling where men tend to tend to be more republican and women tend to be more liberal or democratic so you uh, I will say this survey this sample as a whole is is very much sort of democrats and independents it's even fewer republicans than you would see statewide but again I think it's only 15% you, republican you, in but in survey. in Boston that's actually pretty close to what you're what you yeah, actually right. finding. it does say so, that
0: republicans are much less likely to use Zipcar car and hubway which I thought was, you know, that kind of yeah. goes to that. Do you, know, you know, feel like that was even, that was
1: yeah. that even, since it was such a small group of Republicans, was that even significant to um, break down how likely they were to use different modes?
2: I think, well, with 660, I think you could, you could probably okay. get enough to say something about it, yeah. But, um, I, you know, it, it. yeah, it is interesting that the, some ideological preferences get down even to the level of like, I'm not even going to use Hubway. I, I don't know if that's why people are not, not doing it. The other thing is you have to think about like, do those Republicans live in Boston or are they some of the people who live more on the outskirts in this sample and as a result um, might not have access to Zipcar and uh, Hubway as opposed to the people who live further in. So there's a lot of um, kind of conflating and uh, you know factors there that you know could, could kind of be making it harder to draw conclusions
0: about. and for the rest of the show you can tune in to part two that's going to be episode 21b um uploaded within days if it is not there yet and the transit matters podcast is a production of josh fairchild and myself jeremy mendelson you can find us online at transitmatters.info and we are the two voices you heard along with rich parr of massing polling which our special guest so visit us at transitmatters.info and send us email. Go to Facebook, Twitter at Transit Matters, and you can uh, get in touch with us. Find out how to volunteer, uh, join as a member, and donate because we need your help to do this work. And stay tuned for part two.